0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteinagogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R again today. We have a huge show for you today. We are doing the Twenty and Twenty program. That's twenty PhDs in twenty minutes with a group of postdocs. They're people who have moved on from doing their PhDs. They still have PhDs, of course, but they're working as professional scientists now. They're all pretty young. They're all pretty green, but they're all ready to go. And we're going to give them all a couple of minutes. And uh, well, give them a minute. Actually, I'll take a minute, and we're going to try and get through 20 of them in uh, in the show today. It's going to be a lot of fun. So without uh, further ado, I'm going to get straight into it. And uh, the first on our list is Nilfa Ansari. She is from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Nilofar, how are you going? Good morning.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me, Shane.
0: Now, it's great, to, it's great to talk to you. You work on something I hadn't even thought about, that the idea that there are these cells buried in our bones, and these are obviously really important, but we have to be able to get pharmaceuticals to those cells. How do you go about that?
1: Osteocytes are one of the most amazing cells in the whole body. These cells are buried alive within the bone matrix, and as soon as they become embedded, they start to form processes by which they can contact each other and also contact the other cells on the bone surface to regulate bone mass itself. and serve. And they're new targets for treatment of osteoporosis. But the main challenge of delivering drugs to these cells is their location. The cells and their processes reside in microscopic fluid filled tunnels, which limit the access of materials. Mm. In my project, we're using uh, bioresponsive nanoparticles to deliver drugs to these cells. And nanoparticles are tiny enough that they can pass through the tunnels and reach the cells. And we have changed the surface of these nanoparticles in a way that they specifically bind to these cells and release their cargo once they have been uptaken, which is what we call bioresponsive.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and the, I mean, they have to be small, obviously, to get in there. Does that mean that we have any trouble sort of uh, filtering them out of our body as a whole if they're excess, you know, like normally our, our kidneys and, and so forth do a lot of work with drugs? Uh, do we do we have any problems with that given they're so small or is is that something that's not an issue?
1: Oh, we had a library of different sized nanoparticles. So we're choosing the size that they are optimal for delivering the drugs mm-hmm. so they don't be cleared very early, but they don't uh, be too big not to pass in these tunnels. And that's one of the main things of our nanoparticles.
0: Right, Nilifa, thanks so much for chatting to us today and being our first on our, our 20 and 20 project program for postdocs.
1: Thank you, Shane.
0: Great to talk to you. Uh, next up is Zhao Zhao Li from the University of Sydney and, in fact, Jojo is in the transition from the University of Sydney to the, um, the University of Technology Sydney and I think today she is um, between the two. Uh, good morning Jojo. how are you going?
2: Thanks Che, thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you on. Uh, congratulations on your new job at uh, UTS starting tomorrow <laughs> I believe, yes?
2: Yes, that's right.
0: Fantastic. Now you work on stem cells and how they can be used to repair particular body parts. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, sure. So actually, um, all cells of the body produce these tiny biological packages that are nanometer sized and they contain a whole lot of information like DNA, RNA, proteins that the cells use to communicate with other cells. And with certain types of stem cells, like the ones that I work with um, called mesenchymal stem cells that are found in the adult bone marrow and fat, uh, they actually have these miraculous anti-inflammatory and pro-healing properties that are contained in these tiny packages that the cells produce. So my research is looking at how you can manipulate these stem cells so that their uh, tiny packages, which are actually called extracellular vesicles, can be manipulated to have the maximum therapeutic benefits for treating disease.
0: Yeah, I mean... so the anti-inflammatory condition, uh, you know, the treatment of, with anti-inflammatories really is something that I think needs a lot because, you know, whether it's um, rheumatoid arthritis or, or a variety of other scenarios, we I mean, we have a crack at this, but it's, you know, a lot of people are suffering a lot, aren't they?
2: Yeah, so um, the disease that I'm actually currently focusing on is osteoarthritis, yeah. so that's where you get really painful joints um, like your knees and hips and ankles and whatnot, and it affects like 300 million people around the world. So I'm sure if you don't already have it, you know someone who has it. Yeah. Um, so hopefully with you know the optimization of using these uh, stem cell-secreted uh biological packages we can actually help um reduce the inflammation and stop the degeneration in the joint to help these patients feel better and live better
0: yep sounds fantastic great work Georgia. thanks for being on, on the show today
2: thank you bye
0: next up is uh, matthew snelson from monash university good morning matt how are you going I'm um, going great, Shane. Thanks so much for having us on. It's great to have someone else with such a low voice, too. I love that. Uh, now, you work on <laughs> the effects of processed foods on kidney disease. Uh, you know, everything, Every time I think about processed foods, I get a bit scary because I know these things are somewhat unnatural and shouldn't be in our diets. But what specifically is happening with regards to people who already have kidney disease?
3: Uh, great question. So we know that um, people who have kidney disease already – If they have an excess intake of these processed foods, that can help contribute um, to the progression and worsening of the kidney disease. And my research is really looking at how we can make those foods healthier to try and limit that progression. Because kidney disease is is a quite nasty, insidious disease. And if we can Mm. limit... Um, how bad it gets we can really help these people
0: yeah now my understanding too of kidney disease is you you kind of don't really know until it's too late is that right so that by the time you work out you've got kidney disease the 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 sort of damage and and that has gone a fair way down the track
3: yeah that's right and that's that's why i use the word insidious because you can lose up to 90 percent of the functional capacity of your kidneys before you even start to show symptoms Mm. and by the time you've lost that much you know it's quite a bit gone
0: yeah yeah and so what what should should we i mean if we're all trying to do more prevention rather than cure what sort of uh, advice do you give on what we should eat uh well that's yeah what my
3: research is really focusing on is how we can make these delicious processed foods that everyone loves to eat healthier for us um and this might come as no surprise but things like dietary fiber or particular things that help the gut microbiota Mm -hmm. that's sort of what i'm focusing on trying to make the healthy de- deli- sorry, the unhealthy delicious processed foods are a bit healthier for all of us. Yeah, because so the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating Fruit and Veg is a good start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to eat this stuff regardless. So if we can fix it up a bit, um, that'll help a lot of people. Thanks so much, Matt. Good to chat to you. Thanks. Next up is Tom Ford's, uh, Forbes from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Good morning, Tom.
4: Morning, Shane. Thanks for having us.
0: It's great to talk to you. Now, we were just talking about kidneys. You're making mini kidneys in a dish. How do you go about that?
4: Yeah, so um, we do quite exciting research at the Murdoch where we basically can take a blood test from a child who has a genetic kidney disease and turn their blood cells into uh, stem cells, which we call induced pluripotent stem cells or IPS cells. And then within our lab, we've got a protocol to transform or differentiate those cells into little mini kidneys in a dish. And what my research looks at is is really whether we can pick up evidence of the the patient's kidney disease within their organoids. And we've shown that we can do that. And that's really exciting because it allows us to learn more about their disease without Mm. having to take their kidney tissue from their kidneys. But it also provides us a platform to start looking for new therapies by treating the organoids before we go to treat the actual
0: patient. Yeah, I think that's one of the most fascinating things for me around this is that the idea that you can start doing experiments with all different types of drugs on these little organoids without any risk to the patient whatsoever, yeah?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and more than that, I think we can look at it in a really agnostic way. So even without knowing anything about the kidney disease at all, um, there's the prospect of being able to upscale the culture to the point where you can grow you know, close to 400 of these mini kidney organoids from a single patient on a culture plate that's no bigger than a small novel and use some really complex um, microscopy and um, computer hardware and, and, and software to sort of automatically read out what each organoid looks like and screen thousands of potential compounds, either compounds that are completely new and and have no known function but also repurposed compounds, compounds that are already used to treat other conditions and are already listed on the PBS.
0: Yeah, fantastic. It also amazes me how many how many drugs are just sitting on the shelf because the efficacy wasn't at a financial level that drug companies would accept and we can start testing some of those for specific purposes in this way, in a safe way. it's uh, fantastic work, Tom. Uh, good luck. I hear a lot about these uh, mini, mini sort of organs that you guys are doing down there, so um, you must be excited to be part of that and well done. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers. Next up is Darwin Gravera from the University of Michigan and Michigan State University. Good morning, Darwin.
5: Hey, how's it going? Thanks I should say,
0: me. sorry, I should say good afternoon. Uh, what time is it for yeah. you over there? 9 p.m. 9 p.m. Oh, good evening. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, get there. we'll get there eventually. Now, you, you're doing some super interesting stuff, and, and thanks so much for, for staying up for the show. Um, you're looking at how we can make emotional regulation easier for people. How do you go about that?
5: Right, so the way that we do it right now is um, we're talking about outsourcing it to placebo objects. So we use we leverage placebo effects to regulate people's emotions. So I give you some sort of placebo object, and I tell you that it makes you feel better, and then we use those obje- objects, and that that sort of leads to you actually feeling better.
0: Hmm. And so, so what what would we what would we do differently if you know this is something that I suppose most people are just bad at, right? So a lot of people are bad at. So what would we do differently to make this um, sort of viable for everyone to get in the right space with regards to emotional regulation?
5: Uh, I mean, there's a few things that you could do. You could try to make difficult emotion regulation easier by doing it repeatedly so that it becomes a habit, right? So that's one way to do it. And there's a class of emotion regulation strategies that are just inherently easier, so, for example, there's a thing called affect labelling. Uh, the act of just naming an emotion actually has these regulatory effects. Mm. And then the other thing that you could do is you could outsource it to different uh, external stimuli or different objects in the actual world.
0: Mm. Presumably a big part of this, too, is giving people the language. When you talk about affect labelling, a lot of people just don't have the, the language, presumably, to you know, express what emotions they're having at a given time.
5: Right. No, absolutely. Right. Just being able to name an emotion is is incredibly important.
0: Mm. Darwin, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck over there. Stay safe in the U.S. I know things are a little bit more troubling than they are here in, in Australia at the moment, but um, do stay safe and, and thanks so much for being part of the program.
5: Sounds good. Thank you.
0: Okay. Next up is Elna Potsey from the University of Melbourne. Elna, can you hear me?
6: Yes, I can. Thanks for having me, Shane.
0: Good morning. Look, it's great to talk to you. You're working on some of the effects of early sort of exposure to stress um, in the sort of mental health developments that we have and what happens later in life as a result of that. Tell us, how how early are you looking with regards to stress exposure?
6: Uh, So my research focuses mainly on childhood, late childhood, So, uh, and in particular, we look at uh, parenting behaviour. So we get uh, kids and the parents in, their la- in our lab and uh, um, observe and record their interactions.
0: Mm. And what sort of effects do you see? Um, like when, when you when you look at those late in life effects, what sort of things are we talking about? Is it sort of depression or concentration or skills? What 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 are the impacts?
6: Yeah, that's a very good question. So my research focuses mostly on anxiety and depressive symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and we look at the brain circuits that underlie emotion processing and emotion regulation because we think that they are very important for um, mental health. So, individuals uh, with uh, depression, for example, um, experience persistent negative feelings of sadness and hopelessness. So we want to understand which changes uh, occur in the brain that promote this type of feelings. Mm.
0: And is it um, something that we can have interventions for later in life or do we really need to deal with this at the uh, the early age where you're studying?
6: We think that intervention early is important because uh, during childhood the brain is very plastic mm. uh, and undergoes uh, uh, important changes. So we actually hope to um, start some uh, intervention study combined with the, uh, neuroimaging, so with brain scan and see what uh, intervention is more um, effective in promoting some
0: um,
6: adaptive changes.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. Have you got a, have you got a, a recruitment requirement that do you need to recruit people?
6: Well, first I have to recruit the money and then hopefully oh. we can do a, um, a small pilot study. That's my goal. goal.
0: Well, if you need help promoting the pilot study, let us know once you've got the money. Hopefully you get the money soon. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Eleanor. Great to talk to you. Good luck with the work. Thanks
6: so much. Uh, thank you.
0: Next up is Dwan Price from Deakin University. Dwan, can you hear me? I can say, and good morning. Good morning. Now, uh, you're working at some really, on some really interesting new ways to detect the allergens that trigger thunderstorm asthma, and I'm sure a lot of people, you know, it it's kind of feels like it's a long time ago now, but it wasn't that long ago that we had this major event that killed quite a number of people in Melbourne. So quickly, thunderstorm asthma is asthma caused by particles that are delivered during thunderstorms. Is that right?
7: Yeah, exactly. So it really is the perfect storm. So it's a combination of super high pollen levels, and that's allergenic pollen, so usually from grass species, not those cute little fuzzy wattle balls that everyone usually associates pollen with, and perfect conditions associated in in a certain kind of thunderstorm. So the pollen itself, I like to use the analogy, it's a bit like a balloon that's filled with uh, confetti. Mm. And during these certain kinds of thunderstorms, all of these pollens, these whole pollens, are brought up into the stream of the thunderstorm. At some point, they rupture and they release all of their much smaller allergenic particles, the confetti, if you will. Right. And it's those little particles that reach deep into our lungs, giving hay fever sufferers their allergic reaction.
0: Yeah. So, so no- normally the pollen just gets into our nasal passages and causes some tears and stuff and hangs around up there, right? But but in this case, exactly. it goes to it's the lungs. It's just
7: super irritating. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of snot, lots of sneezing. And that's normally where hay fever sufferers will have their allergies. But during these storms, these particles get breathed right down deeply into the lungs. And they have symptoms very similar to asthma.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so, what, so what do we do in terms of detection of these particular particles? That's what you're working on.
7: Right. So, I've kind, I'm a bit of a new face in this field. So, t- my day job is partly um, detecting the pollen levels to help people with asthma know if they should take their medicine. Yep. And that technology has been around for about 50 years. And so, what we're trying to do is bypass detecting the whole pollen and just looking for those tiny little particles so that we can give hay fever sufferers a much faster response and a much more specific uh, emergency warning. I kind of like to think of it like a smoke detector, but for allergens.
0: Yeah. And this is a big deal because one of the things that I, I, I seem to recall is that a lot of people who weren't really aware of their asthmatic conditions and so forth were caught off guard and didn't know how to react, which is one of the reasons we had so many, so many deaths, yeah?
7: Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, people are quite aware that they will have hay fever, but they mm. they weren't also aware that they could actually suffer In this more extreme way, where they breathe those particles much lower and they have these asthmatic symptoms, which was quite surprising compared to the normal stuffy nose and the itchy eyes that they're used to.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Duan, you've got a couple of months to sort this out before uh, the next big pollen season. So uh, you better get back to work. Yeah. (laughs)
7: That's right. We'll need the cash for it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for chatting to us today. Okay, next up is Mary Dahm from the Institute of Communication and Healthcare at the Australian National University in Canberra. Good morning, Mary.
8: Hi, Shane. Thanks for
0: having us. It's great to talk to you. In there, you work in an area that I think. I think we could just ditch the other twelve people here and just talk about this for the rest of the show. But I'm <laughs> not going to do. That. I'm not going to do that because they'll all, they'll all come and hunt you down. But um, you're looking at how the way we communicate and use language um, in healthcare settings impacts patient safety and quality of care. I mean, just give us some of the highlights there. What sort of things are you seeing in terms of you know how how bad that can be?
8: Um. I I think the thing that I'm most interested in at the moment is to look at um, diagnostic error and how you communicate diagnostic uncertainty. So I don't know if a lot of people know what diagnostic error actually is. It comes in two parts as a definition. The first one is to timely and accurately explain what the patient's health problem is. But secondly, and I think just as importantly, is to deliver that explanation to the patient. Mm. And that's sort of where the the trouble
0: can start. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought that there is such a such a need for training. Maybe maybe it just doesn't happen in all medical, you know, training centres, you know, and medical schools that says the patients have all most of the information you need and your job is to effectively get that out in a way that's clinically relevant. But we don't see that as often as we should, yeah?
8: I think the, the trouble with that is... Um, Because communication often is seen as if you're a good communicator in everyday life, you're seen as being a good communicator in your professional life as well. But there's all these little subtle things that you Mm. do that, that you don't necessarily consciously do or not do, and that can have a real big impact. So your hesitations, your silences the way you um and ah and listen when when a patient tells you something. And the most important bit is with these things, for example, if you um and ah and listen and then ask something like, oh, and do you smoke, which is a complete non-sequitur of what the patient has already said, you lose all your rapport.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, look, it's tricky. Thanks so much, Mary, for chatting to us. Um, no doubt we're going to have to talk about this again because it's, it's such a huge issue of uh, efficiency and, and you know, cost saving and better delivery of healthcare and better outcomes yes. for patients. It's something that I find very interesting. that We haven't talked about a lot on the, on the show. So thanks for joining us.
8: Thank you. Thank
0: you, Shane. Next up is Emily Edwards from Monash University. Good morning, Emily. Hi, Shane. How are you going there? I heard you blowing your nose. You don't have COVID-19, do you?
9: Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, that was me and my irritating recurrent sinusitis that doesn't seem to want
0: to go away <laughs> oh, that's all right we were talking about we we're talking about uh, pollen and, and allergies and stuff before so I figured there was a few people freaking out on the line um, now you you work in the this area of prime primary immunodeficiencies and we actually did uh, pretty much a whole show on this just recently yeah. um, where we spoke to uh, one of my favorite guests who's a, a six-year-old I think she was last year seven now or five and six um, we're gonna have yeah. her on every year until she's 20 as far as I can tell because she's dealing with this particular condition condition tell us what you're working on there with primary immunodeficiencies
9: yeah so uh primary immunodeficiencies are caused by genetic defects and these genetic defects cause your immune system not to respond as efficiently to invasions by um, pathogens so that's things like bacteria and viruses so that means that these patients then have more severe and more recurrent infections um that's rather simplistic because in addition to these um infectious problems they also have non-infectious what we call non-infectious complications so they have a higher um, incidence of autoimmunity and malignancy and things like that so basically these genetic uh, defects cause the immune system to go awry and not respond as efficiently as it would otherwise
4: Mm.
0: yep so 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 what do we do about this because we can't just put all these people in the bubble and hope for the best can we
9: no, unfortunately not. So it's it's a very big spectrum of disease. So um, some are more severe than others. There are there are a large uh, group of patients that are picked up in childhood because their disease is more severe. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we get those that are picked up in adulthood because theirs are less severe. Um, often, if an individual has autoimmunity, for example, that can overshadow the other symptoms of the primary immunodeficiency, meaning that there is a diagnostic delay sometimes of up to about uh, nine years. So, what we're trying to do now in the laboratory um, is trying to get a, a genetic diagnosis for a higher number of patients. So, present in the group of patients I study, there is a diagnostic rate of less than 20%, mm. which is quite low. Mm. Now, I mean. The reason this is important is we need a genetic diagnosis to then tailor the treatment of these patients. Yeah, yeah. The immunoglobulin replacement that they have to replace the antibodies that they don't produce um, is not sufficient. So they need more targeted therapy um, with... Even some of the biologics that we have in, in already in operation in the cancer field could be repurposed for these yeah. patients if yeah. we have a, a sufficient. Yeah, look,
0: diagnosis. it's it's a super important area, and I, I heard the term um diagnostic odyssey a few years back, and that really sold mm. it to me as to what these people were going through, and often with children, and it's just um, horrendous. So thanks so much for doing the work, Emily. Good luck, and I hope the results are uh, you know very valuable soon. Thank you. Thank you. Next up is Nick Everett from Macquarie University in Sydney and the University of Sydney. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. Now you're working on um, methamphetamine addiction and and basically what, what's happening in the brain and so forth um, in terms of some of our potential ways to interfere uh, sort of or stop that that so that of the effects of addiction. Talk, talk us through that.
10: Yeah. So. I guess one of the underlying things with all addictions is they also tend to have a lot of social symptoms and anxiety symptoms that go along with it. Uh, One of the really interesting discoveries recently has been these addictions uh, interfere with the system called the oxytocin system. So it's this hormone in the brain that we know is really important for social behaviour. That's kind of led us down this path of actually trying to maybe use this hormone as a treatment for not just the addiction symptoms but also the social and anxiety symptoms. Mm. So that's kind of where we're at now, uh, testing that out in animal models with rats uh, but also in clinical trials with humans.
0: Yeah and, and how far away would it be in terms of actually putting something like, you know, some of these interventions in place because that, that sounds like something that would be, you know, the ethics around that are pretty pretty tricky, right?
10: Yeah. Um, so I guess one of the nice things about researching a, a hormone like oxytocin, it, we already produce it in our brain. So we already have a pretty good understanding of the risks associated with having it in your system. Mm-hmm. And there don't seem to be many. Um, and so already it's in, it's in trials in humans. They're putting it in nasal sprays. It's going to kids and adults alike. So um, there, there aren't too many ethical problems with using it the problems now are just trying to identify whether it's actually specifically affecting addictions or whether it's maybe some greater uh, pathology it's interacting with like you know the social mm-hmm. symptoms and anxiety overall yeah which- yeah
0: super interesting nick it's a it's a really important area and it's one that you know a lot of people suffer a lot and it'd be great if uh if this turns out to be a absolutely a, a good way to go forward so thanks so much for chatting to us today
10: no worries. Thanks, Shane.
0: Folks, uh, that's the first 10 done. We're going to take a break with some music so that uh, you can get a coffee and uh, I, c- I can have a break because uh, interviewing 10 people in a few minutes is actually something that I'm finding uh, slightly challenging but, uh, but loving because they're, they're such a great group. I'm Dr. Shane. You're listening to Einstein and Go Go on 3 R. Here's some tunes for you. We'll be back in a few minutes with a whole bunch of uh, extra guests for you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. We are interviewing 20 postdocs today in a row, all for just over a minute. And we've done the first 10, if you missed it, and we are on to the second 10 now. The first one up in number 11 is Vanessa Strojanowska. She is from the Ritchie Center, the Hudson Institute of Medical Research, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Monash University. Good morning, Vanessa.
11: Hi, Shane. Thanks for
0: having us. Great to talk to you. And of course, uh, doing the postdocs was your idea. So salute to you for for that. Well done. Now, you work on on, um, preterm babies that have been exposed to inflammation during pregnancy and what the results of that are. Quickly tell us what, what happens to babies that are under these conditions.
11: Yeah, so I study how infection and inflammation during pregnancy affects the developing baby's ability to breathe in the womb. And I don't—it's uh, actually probably not quite well known that babies breathe um, or practice these breathing movements um, in the womb. And so it's important that they practice these breathing movements because um, it's really going to shape how they breathe at
0: birth. Mm.
12: Um,
11: and so what we find is that when a baby is exposed to an inflammatory stimulus, these breathing movements um, drop off.
0: Mm. And what can we do about that? Because this sounds like something that, you know, inflammation is something we all experience at various times. So what do we do to make sure that something as relatively simple as inflammation in the body doesn't have long term breathing effects for, for children?
11: Yeah, so the first thing that we need to do is actually identify the inflammatory molecule or stimulus that's, um, you know, stopping these breathing movements from happening. And so what we're um, exploring now is what inflammatory molecules are affecting the nerves in the brain that control our breathing. Mm. Um, So if we can identify that, we can potentially block these inflammatory molecules, get these uh, breathing movements back up and hopefully improve breathing of these babies at birth.
0: Yeah. And in terms of the breathing at birth, I mean, is this something that's really catastrophic for them or is it something that they grow out of and it's just sort of a, a difficulty?
11: Uh, it's extremely difficult. I mean, the babies develop in a fluid filled environment. And mm. so once they're born, they need to just immediately be able to breathe Um you know, in an, in, in an air environment. So it's extremely difficult, probably one of the hardest things that we'll actually have to do in our lives.
0: Yeah. I, I, at some stage, I'd love to talk to you more about how the hell we actually do that when we pop out and suddenly we just, you know, breathe in an atmosphere yeah. as opposed to what we've been doing for nine months during our development. Yeah. It seems just weird and wacky that the the body's somehow been built that way to do it that way. Vanessa, thanks yeah. so much for chatting to us. It's such an interesting area. And uh, thanks again for, for um, suggesting we do this for the postdocs.
11: Thanks Thanks for having
0: me. Thank you. Next up is Jen Matthews from the University of Technology in Sydney. Good morning, Jen.
11: Good morning, Shane.
13: Thanks for having us today.
0: Oh, look, it's great to talk to you. Now, you're going to teach me about corals and coral reefs and building them. Um, tell us, I mean, what are you looking at in terms of uh, coral reefs? This is something that, you know, has such an intense focus at the moment with regards to what's going on with the climate.
13: Yeah, absolutely. So. Corals are actually part animal, plant and minerals. So the coral animal itself is similar to a jellyfish and it's transparent um, with stinging cells that help it capture food from the water. But they also have these tiny symbiotic algae that live in their tissues and they give them the beautiful colours that you see. But also through photosynthesis, they provide them with the majority of nutrients that they need to grow and construct these big, beautiful coral reefs. And similar to the fact that we have symbiotic bacteria, that help us break down food, the the corals, these symbionts are really important for their growth reproduction. But they also can provide vital metabolites that help them withstand environmental changes. For example, they have antioxidants and other protective compounds. And if they experience environmental stress, it's really important that these symbiotic algae provide them with these nutrients and these metabolites to help them survive that.
0: Yeah, and is that something we can sort of replenish back into the reefs if if they get damaged or destroyed or or, you know, bleached or I'm not sure what happens to these particular components.
13: That's a really interesting question. So um, I don't know about whether we can actually replenish them, but what we can do is use this knowledge of these underlying mechanisms and these metabolites to inform conservation strategies. For example, we could use them as a diagnostic tool for whether corals will be able to withstand some environmental changes. I mean, at the moment, the the oceans are changing at an alarming rate. They're becoming warmer, more acidic. So they pretty much are being beaten up from every which direction. And for an organism that evolved over 200 million years ago, they've certainly got a fight against them. Um, But I think that if we could understand these mechanisms that might control their health and survival, we can better inform these conservation strategies and come up with better ways to help them survive these changes.
0: Well, it sounds like a good plan to me, and I'm glad that you're on it, Jen. Thanks for talking to someone from Melbourne, too. I know you folks up in New South Wales are supposed to stay away from us because we're all... (laughs) you know, in this COVID lockdown phase. But uh, yeah, good work. Thanks for being part of the show. Thank you. Next up is Pradeep Rajaseka from Momesh Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Pradeep, can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, look, it's great to talk to you. I mean, especially coming from one microscopist to another, you know, I did a lot of that work when I was a researcher. I mean, you're looking at, um, you're looking at, at you know, neurons and immune cells within the gut wall. So uh, yeah, we mm-hmm. talk a lot of, lot of neuroscientists who talk about, you know, the brain, but this is in the gut wall. Why, why are we interested in the, the neurons in the gut wall? A lot of people probably don't know there's neurons in the gut wall.
14: Yeah, so they actually refer to it as like the second brain of a uh, body or a mini brain, really. So what what they do is they are important for motility. So essentially, to push content through the gut, so they are they are the cells that drive that and help uh, push these things through.
0: Hmm. And what what can we do in terms of um, I suppose optimizing these this part of the gut wall? I mean, what's what's the goal there? What are we trying to achieve?
14: So so the project what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to map these cells within the human gut. So what I'm trying to achieve is kind of like uh, the end goal I would love to have is have a Google Maps for the gut. Mm, I mean, that would yeah. be, be amazing. <laughs> so the way I do this is I use microscopy and 3D image analysis. Uh, as the cells you're looking at it, are really, really small. They're about like five to ten times smaller than the width of a human hair. Hmm. Um, so, yes.
0: And, you know, we, we normally think of neurons in the brain as having incredible interconnectivity. Uh, what's it like in the gut? Is it similar or are they more standalone?
14: So no, it's it's quite similar, but what what's really cool about these cells are um, they're actually like these small pockets. The cell the cell bodies or the or the cells in itself are like they're like islands, and they're across the wall of the gut and they're all interconnected with each other like these highways like and they're all in the web-like structure which is really cool yeah so I actually posted a, a, an example image on twitter as well
4: which you can actually see it's a cool video
0: oh very cool and uh is there any any validity in me saying you know when i eat something really inappropriate for me that it was my gut brain that caused me to do it is that valid or is that just nonsense yeah
14: <laughs> I don't think you can really
0: comment on that that one. Pradeep, thanks so much for chatting to us. It's really interesting work. I mean, this is one of the areas that I've mentioned lately we're learning so much about over the last 10 years alone, and it's just exploding. It's great. So uh, thanks so much. All
14: right. Thanks, Shane.
0: Thank you. Next up is Sarah Boyle from the Center for Cancer Biology. Uh, This is actually an alliance between South Australian Pathology and the University of South Australia. Good morning, Sarah.
15: Hi, Shane, and thanks for the
0: opportunity. Oh, look, it's great to talk to you. Um, I mean, you're you're looking at some of these sort of drivers of you know the cancer-promoting changes in in that environment, these microenvironments. And I mean, what, what are we talking about there? I mean, what sort of you know, what's tell us about that environment first of all, and then the sorts of changes you're looking for.
15: Yeah, sure. So, um, in solid cancers, for example, breast cancer that I work on, but also different intestinal cancers uh, and many others, pancreatic cancer, skin cancer these type of tumours, the the cancer cells don't just exist on their own. There's many other different cell types that are actually inherently healthy. And as well, there's also um, a scaffold that sort of holds it all together, and that's called the extracellular matrix. And um, what we're interested in is how um, during the development of a cancer, those cancer cells can basically release different proteins into this environment, what we call the tumor microenvironment, and kind of hijack those normal healthy cells and they stop performing their normal functions and instead start helping cancer to grow and they start producing more of this scaffold which instead of supporting the normal organ, starts supporting the cancer.
0: Mm. And... is that something that if we if we worked it out we can then kind of interfere with that process of the the height? I mean, obviously you've got the cancer itself, but you know, when it's starting to enlist all the other good cells in the body around it, then things get really out of control. So is is there a chance we'll be able to sort of prevent that occurrence?
15: Yeah, that's and that's exactly what we're trying to do. So we're trying to so so these proteins that are released from those cancer cells, um, this is this allows the cancer cells to communicate with those other healthy cells. And what we the goal of our research is to try and interrupt this communication, so we can actually design drugs or um, what we uh, antibodies, which are normal in our immune system, that can bind onto those different proteins and essentially nullify them so that they can no longer talk to the healthy cells.
0: Hmm. Look, um, it's it sounds like fantastic work and and I love the fact that there are so many different approaches at the moment to attacking cancer in various ways and, and this sounds like one of the ones that, you know, some of them you hear are very cancer specific, but this sounds to me like one that will be applicable to, you know, most types of cancers, which is exciting, I think.
15: Exactly. And so we, in our lab, we study many different types of cancers and um, we're trying to, Uh, look at how things that we find in one cancer can be applicable to other Mm. cancers and with the goal that you know you still have your chemotherapies you still have your targeted cancer therapies but this would be another tool in the toolbox so to speak that we can uh, hit the supporting structures and the supporting environment as well as the cancer itself
0: yep look great work Sarah Uh, great to talk to you thanks so much for being part of the program
15: Thanks a lot,
0: Shane. Next up is Erin McGillick from the Hudson In- Hudson Institute for Medical Research down at Monash University. Good morning, Erin.
16: Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, look, it's great to talk to you. Uh, you're working on some of the uh, complications that can happen during pregnancy that affect babies' lungs, um, but I guess, during and, and after birth. Tell us uh, what's going on there.
16: Absolutely. So my research looks at understanding how being exposed to pregnancy complications can affect the way that the lung actually develops but also how that can influence the baby's ability to make that transition from fetal life to the air-breathing environment. So we know that about one in five babies need some help to do that on their own. Mm.
0: And you're using the synchrotron to do this? How How do you go about that?
16: I do, yeah. So this is the most exciting part of my research. So a synchrotron is like a large machine, and so we're lucky enough to have one here in Melbourne, which is about the size of a football field. And so what that does is a synchrotron can accelerate electrons near the speed of light. And so this can then produce x-rays that are about a million times brighter than the sun. And we can then channel these powerful x-rays down into a beam line, which is where we can use them with our newborn models to be able to see into the smallest airways in the lung. And we can also see into the blood vessels. So to get an under- understanding of how the lung function is affected in disease.
0: Mm. And you're not putting babies in the synchrotron. How do you get the tissue in there?
16: So we have a lot of different models, animal models of newborn disease. And so what we can do with these is we can see right down into the smallest airways to find the best ways that can help. And so then what we can do is we can translate these into clinical trials to help find better ways for these babies to help them have the best possible start to life.
0: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. You know, I used to share my lab or the next door lab to mine to the guy who's, uh, I think, I believe, still the director of the synchrotron. So if you have any problems out there, you give me a call and I'll ring him up. It's a good guy. Um, good luck with the ongoing work. That's a, it's a fantastic thing that the Hudson Institute has a good, good links with the synchrotron and using that sort of, you know, light source that otherwise is not available to researchers anywhere else. So uh, keep up the good work, Aaron, and um, hopefully we'll get some nice results out of that.
16: Thanks for the chat,
0: Shane. Thank you. Next up is Lawrence Liu from the University of New South Wales. Good morning, Lawrence. Good morning, Shane. We're, uh, we're really kicking goals with all the, the kids' illnesses today and the illnesses that we all get, I suppose, in the, in the case that you're working on, which is whooping cough. I was surprised to read in your brief that this is something that's sort of starting to re-emerge as a big problem around the world. What's going on?
17: Yeah, so what uh, we've found is that over the past decade, the bacteria which causes whooping cough has actually changed and sort of adapted and evolved um, to better evade um, the vaccine that we're currently using. Um, So we see that the number of cases have started to increase, um, but even though it is evolving, the current vaccine is still doing a really good job. But what my work is trying to do is trying to see if we can improve this vaccine um, so that it can better target these evolving strains.
0: Mm. how much is the sort of lack of coverage uh you know lack of use of the vaccine in some some populations part of that problem i mean if if people are wandering around more people wandering around with this presumably that's how these things evolve right is that the case uh
17: yeah so um definitely um uh people not getting vaccinated um is an issue but um it's sort of just one factor of an overall sort of story so mm. Um, At the moment, um, this vaccine um, is really good at protecting you against getting the disease and the symptoms of pooping cough, but um, it doesn't actually stop you getting sort of infected and you can still pass it on without sort of knowing. Um, And at the moment, uh, the vaccine targets um, proteins which are not as important to the bacteria, so it's able to lose them without um, any significant consequences. So what we're trying to do is trying to better understand um, this bacteria how causes infection and seeing if we can really target the essential proteins that it needs.
0: Yeah, look, it's great stuff, and I think any of these uh, efforts where we try and keep in front of some of these illnesses as they as they progress. I mean, the idea that you just stop and not worry about it again is is kind of a bit of a myth. You know, we have to keep keep on top of these and keep uh, getting ahead of them as they. Nature's great at evolving. Great, and evolving. Yes, okay. We're going to be good at it too, uh, Lawrence. Thanks so much for chatting to us. It's a really interesting area of work, and um, whipping cough, I think, is something that's a bit underreported in terms of its danger. So, thanks so much. Thanks, Shane. Next up is Eleonora Chiri from Monash University. Eleonora, can you hear us?
18: Loud and clear, Shane.
0: Great to talk to you. Now, you uh, we all know about the uh, cows farting and the issues that it has for climate, but you, you're looking at a smaller individual that's uh, contributing to this, which is termites. People wouldn't be aware of this termite problem. What's going on?
11: I know.
18: Well, well you can call them tiny cows in a way because what they do is like they function like cows internally when they digest their food, and they actually do emit methane gas as well into the atmosphere, which is bad. It's greenhouse gas. And compared to yeah, compared to the cows, they release about like a quarter what cow contribute to the to, to the methane in the air. But what it's cool about termites is like they live in a house which is their mound, which is filled up with a a filtering system pretty much. There are bacteria living in there which munch on the methane that is produced by termites, and so only half of the one that is produced by termites just go into the atmosphere.
0: Yeah. yeah. Wow so so the termites essentially have this sort of self filtration system going on there, so that their impact on um, on their climate is is minimal, presumably by the sounds of it
18: yeah, yeah, they are really are uh, very good at cleaning up after themselves that's I like to see them in this way they like exactly they kind of make some mess, but the bacteria, which is what I'm working on pretty much are very efficient at cleaning after them, and that's uh, that's great. What we could do, these bacteria, they are in every soil, like uh, they're really literally everywhere. And so, by studying them in their environment and the termites in their mound, they offer a good opportunity to that. It makes that understanding better how they do
1: this process.
0: Yeah, for a moment, I had an image of cows underneath big dirt mounds, but that's not where you're going. You're going more on understanding this bacteria and working out how it can be used to, um, yeah, to really, yeah, yeah,
18: exactly. Eventually, we might just end up uh, having some, you know. I don't know, ants for cows so they're filled up with these bacteria and eventually also cows that will release a bit less meat then. but yeah, that's a little bit of a fast stretch application I would say.
0: Yeah, well look, it's fascinating work. I had no idea that these termites farting was um, being dealt with so effectively so thanks so much for that Eleonora. It's really interesting work. Good luck with the the ongoing stuff.
18: Thank you, my pleasure Shane.
0: Thank you. Next up is Shimonti Bhattacharya from Monash University. Shimonti, can you hear me? Yes, it's great to be here, Shane. It's great to talk to you. Now, um, a few years back, there was a, a lot of hoo-ha around the fact that uh, graphene was suddenly a new material that everyone was excited about, these sheets of carbon. You know we, We'd heard of you know, carbon nanotubes and various things for a while, but then all of a sudden said, hey, you can just make them into sheets. What are you doing with graphene?
12: Uh, actually, it turns out graphene just opened the door to the universe of a lot of other 2D materials. Which uh, So graphene consists of only carbon, but there are other two-dimensional materials which are made of other other elements. For example, there is something called molybdenum disulfide, which is made of molybdenum and sulfur. There is something called tungsten disulfide, which is made of tungsten and sulfur. So we now have uh, almost our hands on thousands of two-dimensional material which offer many different characteristics. So some of them are good at uh, carrying electricity like graphene. Some of them are really good at absorbing light so they can have a solar cell applications. So there are uh, it's almost like you, you can imagine an application and you can create it out of these two-dimensional materials.
0: Yeah. So I understand the idea that these sheets are one atom thick essentially, but how how wide are they? How, how big are these sheets?
12: Okay. So it depends on how you make them. Uh, The way I make them in lab is a very simple way, and it's my favorite. I just take a sticky tape from a stationery store and I grab a big crystal and I put my sticky tape on the crystal, pull it out, and I can create very uh, thin, atomically thin layers. But these are very small. Essentially, you can think of the width of our human hair. So I get my layers, which are almost as big as that. But uh, there are researchers all over the world which are working on these materials and creating sheets as large as uh, centimeter scales. Uh, Samsung has made a graphene sheet, which is as big as a TV screen. So a lot of work is going on in that. And recently there are some novel ways of even using sticky tape to create centimeter scale two dimensional material.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Fantastic. Take that post-it notes. Sticky tape is still the best stuff there is. You can make sheets of carbon. Yes. with it. Um, Shimanti, thanks so much for chatting to us. It's really interesting. It's great to see uh, how graphene is just exploding as a, as a material and, and finding new uses every day. It's, it's really interesting stuff. Thanks so much.
12: Thank you.
0: Okay. Uh, now, our second last uh, postdoc for today is uh, Shimona Carbon from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Good morning, Shimona.
19: Good morning, Shane. Good morning, listeners. How are
0: you going? It's great to talk to you. you now you, you're not far from me here; you're just down the road in Parkville, I assume. But um, you're working on um, intestines and this sort of enteric nervous system. Tell us about the enteric nervous system. It's something I think a lot of our listeners won't have a real good feel for.
19: Yeah, so it's really fascinating. Uh, The gut is a very unique organ because it's the only organ that has its own little brain that tells it completely what to do. So as Pradeep started explaining, it controls the way that the gut moves, it controls the way that nutrients are absorbed or secreted um, and it controls blood flow to the area as well. So if you think about how many um, of the brain is made up of nerve cells, your gut brain is made up of around four to 600 million That's the same number that are in the spinal cord, so it's pretty impressive.
0: Wow. And in terms of the, um, I I suppose, the the, the sort of work that you want to do on that, I mean, what what sort of things do you want to be able to change or or interfere with or or enhance in, in your work?
19: Yeah, so the project I wanted to talk about today. So while this concept of the gut brain is really fascinating, scientists have known about it for quite a while. It was first discovered probably at around the turn of the 19th century, 18th to 19th century. Um, But what's amazing us now is the fact that these cells we thought glue that were just holding this nervous system in place, um, these glue cells are actually really important for controlling the way that they help control the way that the gut brain talks to itself and how the gut brain is able to talk to other cells in the gut wall. So my work is aiming to understand about how these glue cells or enteric glia able to regulate um, communication in the gut wall.
0: God, every time we uh, dive into one of these areas, it seems there's a new cell type that um, we didn't think of as being valuable before that's doing all sorts of stuff. And these, these cells presumably, they're different to the, the neuron cells and, and those other very sophisticated cells, but they're obviously doing something pretty substantial if they're helping with the communication.
19: Exactly, and that's why it's so amazing that for such a long time we thought they did nothing more than just provide structural support to this gut brain. Um, And It actually turns out that cells we thought just had an immune function, Um, they're called tissue-resident macrophages, they're actually important for controlling communication as well. Wow. Uh, So really what my work is aiming to do is compare how a lot of our knowledge about how these types of cells work comes from experiments that have been done in rodent tissues and while this absolutely is really important it provides a lot of information we want to understand how these cells function in human tissues Um, we think this is a really important place to go
0: fantastic stuff simona thanks so much for chatting to us today
19: pleasure thank you for having me
0: now last but not least folks we have natalie feeney from the university of melbourne on the line good morning natalie how you going
20: Good morning, Shane. I'm well. thank you. Thanks for having me today.
0: Uh, look, it's great to talk to you. Uh, you're working on stroke and cardiovascular disease and how physical activity has a sort of prevention effect on that. Tell us about your work.
20: Yeah, so I'm interested in working with stroke survivors and preventing a further stroke and um, a further stroke or cardiovascular event. So this is a big problem because one in three stroke survivors will have another stroke within five years. Um, And being physically active is actually really important because we know that exercise can help the brain to recover Mm. and then prevent further events.
0: How do you go over that hump of, you know, people must must come back to you and say the last thing I want to do after having this sort of incident is do any physical activity because there'd be an element of fear of lack of capability. I mean, how do you get people past that?
20: Yeah, so I guess when uh, stroke survivors go into rehabilitation as physiotherapists, one of the most important things we do is um, exercise and get our patients moving again. Uh, So I guess we get them a bit used to exercise, but the key for long-term physical activity really is to find something that they're interested in um, because we want to change behaviour for the longer term. So there's no use saying, Shane, you have to go to the gym three times a week. Um, if that's not something you want to do. So it's about really um, working with uh, the patient together to find what it is that they want to do. Yeah, and
0: very very specific types of activities presumably as well that are tailored for each individual?
20: That That's right and I think that's going to be the key for the future. A lot of physical activity trials in the past um, haven't had positive results at They might have made people stronger or more fit, but they haven't actually improved physical activity levels. So uh, we believe that things need to be really tailored to the individual to be able to make that longer-term behavioural change.
0: Yeah, look, sounds like a great project, Natalie. Thanks so much for chatting to us. I love talking to physios because I I use them way too often, more than I'd like to admit. They're fantastic (laughs) people, do a fantastic job in the health system. Uh, Good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Shane. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. You've been listening to Einstein and GoGo. A huge thank you to the 20 postdocs who were my guests today on the program. Uh, It's been great talking to them all. I think you will agree with me that they're a fascinating group of people doing an incredible variety of research, uh, not just here in Melbourne, but all over the country and all over the world. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einsteinagogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.